Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is my personal press secretary, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? Well, we'll have to circle back on that. Okay, thank you. You can find us on Twitter at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Email us, podcast at romancircusblog.com. Maybe our guest upcoming wants to write for our illustrious blog. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash romancircuspod. You can find us wherever podcasts are. Leave a review or don't, whatever you want. Zach, what's going on in the world? We got a good interview coming up, but people want to know the news. Give us well, all the news that's fit to print. The Golden Globes were this past Sunday. Ah, uh, yes. Did you watch? Uh, no. So it was really bad. Like as far as the production, there were a lot of technical difficulties. Um, mm-hmm. And now I should say she won't listen to this, but one of my dear, dear friends was on the production team for the Golden Globes. But continue. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sure it's not your friend's fault. Um Probably not. But then the other thing that was just weird was the hosts. Like it was Tina Fey and um, Amy Poehler. And their like whole opening monologue was sort of lecturing the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press. Now I'm going blank. What are they called? Club? Committee? Team? Crew? Yeah, sure. The people who vote for the Golden Globes. Kind of like the Academy at the Academy Awards. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, about, you know, their lack of diversity, which is just odd because they are technically foreign, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, but then they were complaining about, you know, Sia's movie music and saying how problematic it was and how bad Emily in Paris was and all this stuff. And it's like, it's just very, I don't know. It was just kind of very much like like white women. Ricky Gervais did this a few years ago. Well, they were, you know, they were complaining about lack of diversity and and um, things being problematic, but they didn't have a problem themselves as like white women taking the center of attention and then wow. just using it to Zach, nag. It, it was Zach it was the kind of feminism. Well, no, but it it was the kind of like feminism that a lot of people complain the most about, where it's like hyper privileged people who, um, you know, they complain a lot, but they still are happy to like flex their privilege as it comes to the, I mean, you know, it, it's a stupid dialogue, right? But, mm-hmm. um, the, they need to bring back, what's his name? Ricky Gervais. Yeah. He is the, like, he's the best golden globes, uh, person. So anyway, they also, the, the award choices were interesting. There were some I was really happy about. Um, but then it was odd cause best comedy. So comedy and musicals are are grouped together for purposes mm-hmm. of the golden globes and are separated from drama. So there's, there's like two different tracks for winning and the comedy best film went to Borat too, which I wanted to like really because it would have been kind of, uh, yeah, like it would have been somewhat contrarian for me to have liked it. So I really wanted to for like the content <laughs> like it and it, it just wasn't good. Um, yeah. So I wanted in that category for Palm Springs to win, which was nominated, but it, they Wait, were both so up they, a- they, the winner was a movie that had a guy dress up like a clan member and walk through the, through CPAC. CPAC. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was the one, which which was to a lot of people traumatizing. Like, there were people that were frightened about what was going on there. Besides, just like you know, if you if you think it's fair game to like dunk on conservatives at CPAC, whatever. But the like, there were people that were frightened by that. But setting that all aside, I guess the one win though is in that category because they group comedies and musicals together. I wanted Palm Springs to win, um, but mm-hmm. they did beat Hamilton, and so that was. Um, Finally, that thing gets knocked down a peg. Yes. Um, in the animated category, Soul won. So, uh, you know, we gave it positive marks when we reviewed it. Yeah. Um, so that was good. So, yeah, it was um, it was overall, it was a good, I mean, it, it was just awkward the way that they had people accepting the awards at home. And then mm-hmm. like Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, all of the sort of gags were just their SNL friends doing what felt like in a lot of cases, almost like inside jokes. Like, I don't know if they thought very many people were watching. I, I'm not totally kind, sure. Kind of how we, kind of how we conduct ourselves on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I, I still really like award shows and um, I had fun mm-hmm. watching, but, uh, and, and there were some good calls, but yeah, Borat winning and Sasha Baron Cohen winning best actor in a comedy. Um, yeah. Taking some huge L's for the, for the, just the, the art, just the, just cinema, you know, as a true, as a true artist, I am offended. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, at the end of the day, it was fine. And it, um, you know, I'm trying to think of other, uh, the crown. Um, mm-hmm. so for best supporting, uh, the lady who played, uh, Jillian Anderson, who played Maggie Thatch, Thatcher, oh, uh, one oh, Maggie Thatch. Yep. Mark, Mark, her. Uh, she won, but she beat Helena Bonham Carter, which I totally disagree with. I thought that yeah, she yeah, was we better. Love, we love Helena Bonham Carter here. Yes, she was better. And then, but in the uh, best actress category for a series, um, it went to, and I don't even have a clue what her name was, but the girl, the gal who played Princess Diana. And she beat, um, and of course I should have written it down because I assumed I'd remember it, but yes, she beat Olivia Coleman in that category, which I thought was sort of art imitating life. Something sort of metaphoric there about, uh, (laughs) about princess Diana upstaging the, the queen in the awards as is life. So, but yeah, so the golden globes does imitate life. Yeah. I'm interested to see what happens with the Academy awards, um, which were postponed until May. So we've got a lot of time. Um, but okay. Yeah. uh, We would, you know, I'm hate, sure Borat we would hate for, anything. We would hate for people to not have our Academy Award podcast, so we'll get that all locked and loaded. Of course. But, people love it. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, well, you know, we got a good interview today. Matthew Walther's coming on to talk about one of his pieces, and I thought it was a good conversation. What did you think, Zach? Give everyone well, hype it up. It a hasn't lot happened now. yet. Uh, no, I, it was fun. I mean, the the piece seemed when I read it, it almost seemed like written for. It was like one of our hobby horses, almost. Mm-hmm. So the I piece is like, called the. I felt like he was talking to me. Felt like he was talking to me. Um, so the addiction problem in Catholic media from the latest uh, issue of the Lamp Magazine. Uh, so we brought him on to talk about addiction and all sorts of fun stuff. All right. Well. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Zach, today on the podcast, we have a good one. We have 
he used to write for the week. You can find all of his columns there. And he's the editor of the Lamp Magazine. And more importantly, he's a Michigan man through and through. He would make Bo Schembechler proud. It is Matthew Walther. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so we, uh, we just got these like musical cut in things with when we changed platforms and we've uh we've like probably lost patrons over over using them but this one was fun i think having having the the michigan fight song there so good to hear uh so matthew what is your so zach and i uh you know we like to corner the market for the guys who go to the latin mass but like aren't necessarily angry trads like zach talks about britney spears a lot on the podcast and i talk about like you know play the theme song for michigan football like what is your where are you at like what mass do you attend before this is going to lead into why we're talking to you i forgot we didn't even introduce the piece but like what is your background before we get into it on like basically preference of mass and catholic worship sure so i um not an uncommon background uh, for people my age in the church. I basically stopped going to mass when I was 11 and except for one funeral did not set foot inside a parish again until I was about 20. And when that happened, it happened to be in the diocese of Marquette where Alexander sample, who's now the archbishop of Portland um, was the ordinary at the time. And he used to celebrate the traditional mass himself in the cathedral every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of happened that at the time that I was um, coming back to the faith, uh, the traditional mass was there. And it was in the context of the traditional mass that I really kind of came back to the faith as an adult. So uh, basically, I can count on my hands. I think I would need to, but barely the number of times that i've um attended the the new mass okay um so yeah what caught what caught our eye uh this week and it was your latest piece for the lamp as we said editor of the lamp check it out thelampmagazine.com the addiction problem in catholic media and this was something zach and i i mean we talk a lot about this type of yeah thing. We, like, we like having people on to talk about the idea that like we're kind of going crazy as a society and uh it we we like to think that it's you know like the brain dead libs and like the the wacky college leftists that are going crazy but really like every <laughs> everyone is going crazy and that even basically goes into like the trad community um within catholicism as far as like I, I mean, it's obviously we see it online, uh, but even offline, you you know, if you just walk through, there are a bunch of people who are worrying about a bunch of things. And what what kind of caused you to write this piece? Like, what was the instigating factor? I think, honestly, it was just years and years of reading the most hysterical, over-the-top stuff written about Pope Francis and I really can't Mm -hmm. understand it because even even from a purely 
cynical perspective. This is a guy who uh, has no particular animus toward um, the traditional mass and, you know, people who are attached to it. But in that world, he's the object of just constant spittle flecked rage. Mm-hmm. And I can't understand it because um, basically the people who whine about cancel culture all the time want to cancel the Pope. <laughs> yeah. That's um, that's a good point. And I, I liked you kind of went through a, you know, a series of events and talked through the sort of trad response um, whether it was the, you know, the situation with the death penalty and updating the 92 catechism or the Amazon Synod or uh, um, Morris Letizia and those things. And uh, obviously I didn't pull the archive for our podcast, but a lot of it echoed things that we were kind of saying at the time of basically, okay, if you can maybe sit down and, and map out like what you want from the church or what your, your goals are, um, you would quickly find the Pope Francis doesn't really threaten these things. Um, you know, we, you know, the Latin mass has a longer leash now than it has had since the council um, that we didn't, there weren't married priests, um, you know, and even with the Morris Letizia, we kind of pointed out like, okay, find us everybody who up until, um, what did it come out in 16? Like up until, you know, May of 2016 had a, an Orthodox view on marriage and then they read that document and now they're a heretic. Like find us anybody who that moved the needle for. And, you know, we were, we were pointing this out and the response we got was just that we were like gaslighting people and we were, you know, enablers and, and things like, I mean, this is all online, of course. Um, but, you know, I think I, with each time, go ahead. I, I just think what's funny about it is that these angry, you know, neckbeard dad bloggers are saying the exact same thing as, um, you know, modernists and liberal Catholics, but also the same thing as the sort of brain dead, you know, secular liberal media. When they say this stuff like, is the Pope about to get rid of celibacy? And it's like, actually, there was no evidence during or immediately after the synod that he was about to relax the ancient discipline of clerical celibacy in the Latin church. And what do you know? He didn't do it. I mean, and even before, I mean, he he never, it's not like he even hinted at it. I mean, there was maybe a bit more concern with that on the marriage stuff or the um, more Letizia stuff, but like the clerical celibacy he every time he was asked about i think he said in like 2017 like i'd rather die than change that or something like that it's like yeah and i i just don't understand why they take him at anything but his word there was another stupid pseudo controversy a few years ago where you know uh some crazy italian journalist italians by the way their their idea of journalism is just crazy <laughs> old men just pounding things out of their keyboard. They don't have like our good Anglo-Saxon standards of truth and falsehood and you know veracity. But some crazy blogger says, you know, the Pope just told me he doesn't believe in hell and the devil. I mean, those are yeah. general audiences, and it's like Francis has talked more about the devil than all three of his predecessors combined. 
Well, these, Absolutely. these things seem to be like always taking place on the plane. Like they always seem to catch him on the plane, right? Like that's it. It always seems like the same environment or like the same place that they always catch these crazy. Well, there's that. Openers. And then the, the old guy who like doesn't take notes. And I mean, and I, okay. Like I, you yeah. can point out that he continues to, you know, have conversations with that guy. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe he shouldn't or whatever, but I mean, right. Like he talks a lot about, uh, the devil, like you said, he's not really shy about it the way that maybe respectable, you know, modern clergy are when it comes to, to speaking about those topics. No, he talks about it like an old, you know, Peruvian grandma. Mm-hmm. And he has this <laughs> yeah. tone all the time. <clears throat> There's a, a great book, an important part of the magisterium that came out a few years ago. And it's a bunch of uh, letters that little kids wrote to the Pope and he just responds to them. And they also draw little pictures for him. Amazing. And this, this one girl, I think from Nigeria asked him, you know, Holy father, uh, what was it like when Jesus walked on water? And he says, you must understand my child, that this is not a, a symbolic, you know, and he explains that he literally walked on water but that his feet did not get in the slightest bit wet. And then he goes into this long poetic description about how as Jesus walked, he peered down and gazed at each of the individual little fishes, all of whom were known to him intimately. Hmm. Crazy. That's awesome. Like that is just great. Yeah. Well, it also seems like, and you talked about this in your piece, you talk about people longing for the worst. And it seems like, part of the problem with for for i won't say with pope francis but for pope francis is people basically project what they want him to be onto him really and like i think that you saw like in the beginning when they oh he's so liberal he's gonna like re reevaluate and reimagine marriage and that was never gonna happen but that was what people wanted him to do and i think the flip side is for like the you know the more traditionally minded people they project the worst onto them because they like long for the worst right and they i think it i i think it's easier to kind of be more comfortable in the worst i don't know if that makes sense no i think that there's definitely a a doomer mindset um and it's a lot it's easier for me to make sense of why certain kinds of trads who, you know, for decades have been driving two hours to go to a traditional mass in the basement of the American Legion at 4.30, you know, mm-hmm. on a Sunday afternoon, and who, you know, grew up in this era where, you know, someone like Richard McBrien, who's a heretic, could be used to instruct generations of Catholics. But it was really bad and required intervention, you know, if someone is using the 1962 liturgical book somewhere. I I get that bunker mentality, and I get that it's hard to come out of that. But what I don't understand, actually, is why it is that people who had very, you know, rigid, ultra-maintained views during the previous two pontificates have suddenly decided, oh my gosh, guys, there's a crisis in the church. There are real problems in the church right now. And they're all mm-hmm. the fault of this guy who's only been here, you know, for a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, you definitely see that. Uh, like the people that seem the most uh, alarmed about 
Pope Francis or will entertain these ideas about him not even being the Pope. They do all seem to have been the the big like JP two stands, like the the really you know the red pin gold. I mean, not Weigel himself, but like the people that were sort of in that milieu. They're free, and then you know you mentioned this in your piece too. Like a lot of the SSPX type people, at least you know the ones that were years and years ago they're just kind of like yeah it's been bad it's bad you know we we, we've seen this but it it is kind of the like jp2 you know the the people that just kind of lived or died by him seem to be the ones the most alarmed and it's it's this weird kind of selective ultra montanism and i think what it shows among other things is that you know actually catholics especially lay people uh or including lay people need good solid formation that is not begin and end with oh the pope says x and that's why i believe x or the pope said this thing in a way that i can immediately understand and that validates my feelings um people need to know the faith and understand the faith and be able to defend the faith and i think what we see is that these people their understanding of what the church was was intimately bound up in the personal magnetism uh, and undeniable uh, world historic charisma of John Paul II. And with him gone and with, you know, his kind of right-hand man, um, Benedict gone, it's like they don't, they're, they're just almost starting over, you know, like, wait, what are the actual foundations of our faith? What, what is obedience? What, what does any of this stuff mean? And meanwhile, they're not willing to go back and sort of retroactively think about how the re- the crisis in the church, you know, that we've been, has been with us for more than half a century, how it's complicated, how um, there aren't a lot of straightforward um, heroes and villains, how um, things that to them look like, you know, uh, horrible you know, errors or blunders are in many ways just attempts to mitigate problems that we've had for a long time. <clears throat> Actually, you know, talk about Amoris Laetitia. I mean, that's a great example because, you know, you could you can argue, all right, this this puts uh, people in a really difficult situation, um, but on the other hand. It was John Paul II with Familiaris Consortio who said, okay, it used to be that people who are in these irregular unions just cannot receive the sacraments mm-hmm. at all un- until they, you know, dissolve, you know, and alter, you know, their, their lives. Um, and John Paul II, for prudential reasons, decided to change the discipline but I think, you know, at the time, while it might have made sense at the time, you look back on it now and you think, hmm, these people who left their spouses and they're, they're living together, you know, in a kind of parody of marriage, they're going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. But they're not ever going to be tempted to, um, you know, engage in adultery. You know, right. That I mean, that really was the big sort of lapse, if you want to point to it from a discipline standpoint, is no, it's fine. Like you can you can get divorced and you can enter an illicit marriage and you can live together, but so long as you uh live as brother and sister, 
And it's like, well, brothers and sisters don't don't get married at the courthouse. Like brothers and sisters don't sleep in the same bed. Like, I, I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, maybe, but yeah, like they, they don't have joint custody of children. <laughs> right? And, you know, again, I think, you know, obviously these are, these are disciplinary questions and, um, you know, you can understand why for reasons of compassion, um, this decision might've been made, but I'm just saying that when people are criticizing Amoris Laetitia, they're describing the situation as it's been on the ground for decades. Yeah. So yeah. that's what you said in one of your, in one of the things I wrote down, I tried to take some notes and be a responsible podcast person. Uh, where is it? Oh, you talked about what ambiguity has been spread by Pope Francis that wasn't already introduced over the past four pontificates, I think you said. And this admittedly this is what would frustrate me about Pope Francis uh, at the beginning of when he became Pope is I felt that he was too ambiguous and that it would be a detriment because people would either be upset about it or they would come into the faith under false pretenses. And I've, I've relaxed quite a bit on that, but I don't know. It just, it just seems correct. Like this is, what I've come to realize, like I, the ambiguity didn't really begin with Pope Francis, like you said. And I don't know if it's at some point things need to not be so ambiguous, but also I guess that's another conversation. It, it certainly seems like Amoris Laetitia was implemented at the parish level while JP2 was Pope and Ratzinger was at the um, the uh, CDF. And then they finally got around to like, publishing the document under Francis. I mean, it certainly seems like at least by the eighties, Amoris Laetitia was the status quo around the world. Um, right. And I mean, like I said, in the piece, when I was a kid, the parish I went to the parish, my family was going to at the time that I decided I wasn't going to go to mass anymore. The guy who read the, um, epistle at every mass, was this guy who was divorced and remarried and he was like a proud participant in the local masonic lodge mm -hmm. yeah you know classic many such cases <laughs> and i just i think that part of it this is where I, I i try to read these guys charitably you know the the people who are sort of johnny come lately's on the, these issues is that a lot of them live in places like the diocese of arlington or, you know, in certain parishes in Washington, D.C. or New York that are these sort of enclaves where they actually just have no idea what the reality on the ground is within the church. They live in these comfortable bubbles where uh, John Paul II is the most bestest pope ever, and the church has reached the end of history now. We have this synthesis, and everybody just has to get on board with the program. And... Um, they're realizing that that's not really the case, that things are really messy and complicated. And like I said, they, um, for whatever reason, they, they want to lay all of this at the feet of um, the current Pope. Um, but it just, it seems dishonest to me, even if you can understand why they might have arrived at those false conclusions. I, um, I thought this during the whole back and forth over the with the dubia brothers and the the five questions 
um, was, you know, the answers to those questions are very obvious. Like it was what, just like, no, yes, 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 yes. And, and really nobody needed the Pope to like, nobody really didn't know the answer to those questions. And I kind of understood the Pope's, you know, refusal to actually answer them because at a certain level, it's like, I mean, you can't just, you know, make him say uncle. Yeah. And like nobody, clearly those questions were obvious. Nobody, it was kind of manufactured confusion. I think by asking them, there was a good indicator by, because they're not really disputed questions. Right. No, no Orthodox Catholic is like, there are real dubia where there's something that is just, you know, ambiguous, you know, whether it's a doctrinal or a disciplinary question and you genuinely need to know the answer. Um, I've often thought of submitting some dubia of my own. Like I want to know the name of Noah's wife. Okay. And well, I think only the Pope could tell me that, but that makes sense. You know, that would be, even if he refused to answer, which I'm sure he would, you know, it wouldn't be because I was um, trying to, you know, use this actually serious, um, this actually serious, um, you know, device as a kind of marketing ploy, which is really how all of that played out. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that it was intended that way from the authors. I think the authors were acknowledging, you know, a, a certain kind of, um, you know, some initial confusion. And I think by no, asking those questions, they kind of, I think they kind of made it clear that they, they kind of said, okay, we're on the case. And by not getting an answer, it was like, okay, so then the blatantly obvious answer to these questions clearly stands. Like there has clearly not been a change on these five items. So we can, we can kind of just move on. That was true. Cause if there was a change, then he would have changed it. Right. Like as, mm-hmm. as is the case with most everything, people get upset. Like with Cardinal Seurat, if there was, if Cardinal Seurat, as we talked about last episode was really against Pope Francis and Pope Francis knew about the plot, he would have just, you know, tur- like accepted his resignation early or got rid of him. Like it, if something, if something is going to happen, then it, it will happen. Otherwise it didn't happen because it won't if it if that made any sense yeah sometimes you know the simplest explanation really is the best one like there was a story the other day of where pope benedict had to come out and remind everyone for the five thousandth time hey guys i'm not the pope (laughs) i really did just resign um (laughs) I still have a bone to pick with him on. I, I really wish someone would say, okay, given that you're not the Pope, why do you continue to dress like it? And why do you continue to be addressed as such? Like, do you understand that like you're the reason that you keep having to do this? Like, anyway, we don't have to go off on that tangent, but um, continue. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I think part of that, um, Part of the weirdness there is probably just that I honestly don't know if he expected that he would live this long after resigning. You know what I mean? Yeah, what it's been eight years, right? Yeah, eight years. It's been longer than his papacy. I think we hit that threshold really recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he thought that. I just, I, and I, it's not that I want to attack the dear emeritus, but I, I do, I just wonder if it's ever occurred to like him or his sort of, um, 
entourage that that a certain amount of that confusion is is like because of how he has like handled not being pope anymore like he he's again he still dresses like it every single day but uh you know that's neither here nor there so one of the one of the things you talk about is well you go through a few of the things that pope francis has actually done in support of the tratty side of the aisle like how he's improved relations with the sspx like allowing them to hear confessions and um and you say that like the sspx is kindly is kind of I don't know. I forget the exact wording, but like kept quiet because they realized that this is a fight. This is a fight that's outlasted Pope Francis and the like allowing the pre-1955 mass to come back like with Easter week. Um, And it basically was like these, these spoiled children keep getting things and they keep, keep up the relentless negativity yeah i think actually the spoiled children thing is a, a way that i find really helpful mm-hmm. to think about this so a friend of mine michael hamill wrote a piece for the lamp a while ago um where he says that he when um when these guys complain about the pope especially in a kind of petty way where they say Oh, we don't understand why he did this, or we we would have preferred him to do it this way or to say things this way. He says that there, are, you could only really say that if your dad was the guy who he never missed any of your soccer games. He even went to all the practices. He was there, mm-hmm. there to support you in this kind of you know suburban PMC way. <clears throat> and I think that that's a a good way of thinking about it is their own attitude towards fatherhood. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I would never uh, run down my father, my own father, Gary, in public or write a piece about why he's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And if, you know, a stranger started talking him down, I would be really pissed off. The last thing I would do is, you know, respond to what someone I don't know is saying about him by enthusiastically agreeing you know yeah well or take it a step further if somebody that doesn't know him or whatever in in this uh in this metaphor they happen to like him but you have to like correct them that they like him for the wrong reasons and actually he's bad and like you can't even take like strangers sort of passing approval of of you know this father figure like that enrages you when you see it kind of thing right yeah it's not just that you have to you know, dump on your father constantly, but nobody else can like him either. You hate your dad and everybody else has to. Yeah. It it seemed odd that people didn't see the, they don't see the sort of almost advantage that we have for the faith, given the popularity of the Pope in secular media and contexts. Like there's a lot we could, that could do a lot for us if we could just, you know, be okay with it kind of thing. It's so funny to me that so, of Verso, the leftist publisher, you know, mm-hmm. they brought out a, a few years ago, you know, when it came out, an edition of Laudato C. And I love the idea of this left left wing bookstore having um, a book in it 
that's full of sentences about how contraception is part of a sinuous continuism, a sinuous continuum of exchange that you know is meant to oppress the global poor uh, while sterilizing them and extinguishing their culture. Man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's, a, that's what you call integration from within. There it yeah. is. So um, one thing you touch on too is a thing that I, I don't know, I think about um, is you say for, for years you insisted you were persecuted for your attachment to, tradi- for, to tradition. And I think it's, it's easy to kind of replicate that or make you feel like that online where like you see some tweet that gets thousands of likes and retweets and you click on it and it's like some Protestant, like, you know, philosophy teacher, some, some random account online that gets a lot like, and their theology is just bad and abhorrent. And it kind of, it kind of pushes you into thinking like, oh, these people are coming for me. And the result of that is you see how some trads are treated online, but those are usually anons who are pretty gross and stupid people who are saying things to inflame. Right. So it's like this kind of this circular thing where you can get it in your head, like, Oh, they're coming for me. But I've been a part of two Latin mass communities now, one in Los Angeles and one in Phoenix. And I mean, in general, they're just very nice, happy people, but the diocese also just kind of stays out of their way and they comply with the diocese, right? Like it's, I don't think, I don't think on the ground, if these people were to like, look up and realize what's going on they're nearly as persecuted as they think they are because of what happens online yeah and i mean even what you just described i mean that's sort of the baseline i mean in some in some dioceses um throughout the country you're even seeing something um something more welcoming um so for example in the archdiocese of detroit here in Michigan, um, Archbishop Vigneron basically gave the most beautiful church in Detroit to the Institute of Christ the King. And these, you know, fantastic young uh, canons are in charge of it. They raised all this money and fixed the steeple. And, um, you know, they're just, um, you know, they're growing all the time and the archbishop is really thrilled with everything they've done. He comes and, you know, does sung vespers with them and stuff. There's just no, it's not even like, I think that there was definitely, especially in the immediate post uh, summer and pontificum era, there was mm. this kind of leper colony mindset. Yeah. But I think that what bishops are seeing now is, Oh my gosh, these people are for real. They're so- also, obedient and in a real sense they're the future of the church we had in los angeles we they the the fssp has a parish there now it's a tiny shoebox parish but when it was just getting started we used to have mass in we used to just borrow another church and it was this beautiful old 50s 60s church in west hollywood and it was like it was it's basically a dead a dead parish now like a attendance isn't that great but like the archbishop gomez would come and be a part of the mass and would come and be a part of things and when the 
they got the new, when they finally got the new shoebox parish, he came and he, it was like the first new parish opening that Archbishop Gomez had been a part of when he'd been Archbishop of Los Angeles. Like he, you know, that's because a parish hadn't opened there in a long time, but also he was there and he was happy to be there and pleasant and, you know, very welcoming. So it's like, I, these, it, while there are cases of traditionally minded people being pushed around, I think it's not as nearly as frequent as we think. And that doesn't mean that the, that doesn't mean that if the FSSP goes into Los Angeles, that the, that Archbishop Gomez needs to like be stopping everything just to help them at the drop of a hat. Right. It's just all, all these, all these places just want to be another parish in the diocese. And I think it's, you, it turns out that way more like pretty much all the time. I think for the, um, a lot like the online influencers that sort of thrive on the kind of Francis resistance bot economy, um, the, supply of persecution has not kept up with the demand for persecution. And right. so they, they just have to like inv- more persecution, Zach. I mean, basically, and it, it is a sort of um, cycle of like anything happens and then they, they have their take, which is that this is the worst thing ever and then donate and you're not going to get the truth from anyone else. And the bishops are going to lie to you and your, your parish priest is compromised and this and that. And again, click here to subscribe and sign up, you know, increase your monthly thing so I can keep this going. I mean, it is, it is a whole kind of economy and it it thrives on people's outrage. The thing that maybe is most disgusting to me about it. I mean, just considering it in um, just kind of sociological terms is you you wish these people would have the courage of their convictions because they'll run these pieces with really ambiguous headlines or they'll they'll do a poll like Canon 212 today. Mm-hmm. Who is the Pope? But we we want to Oh my, my good friends. They we, um yeah, that blog hear from you. That blog uh called me a Nazi um for saying that I can't I think it was when I said you can't just like expressly lie on your to your parish on contract tracing forms. Um or something like that. Like I was like, or I, I, maybe it was just that, yes, like your parish can say you have to wear a mask. Like there's the jurisdiction would, would clearly extend to that no matter how annoying it is. Like, and they, they decided I was a Nazi for, uh, for my stance on that. So big, big friend, big, good friends with Canon 212 and, and Frank Walker. <laughs> friends of the pot. Well, yeah. our, our, our pals there, the thing for, about it for me is like, I mean, they'll say all this stuff online, but then in real life, presumably they just go to, you know, their normal parish or whatever. But if these people really had the courage of their convictions, they would just be said of a contest and like drive three hours to go to mass in a shed with uh, or go declare their allegiance to Pope Michael or something. You know what I mean? But, you know, there's not a lot of cachet in that and there's not a lot of money. The actual sedes out there. You know, they might be lunatics, but they really believe it. There, no one looked at a guy like uh, the late uh, Father Anthony Chicada and said, "This guy's in it for the money." This guy's in yeah. it for the clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely fair. There, there didn't really seem to be a lot of earthly payout for those those types. Um, so another thing you mentioned in the piece that I really liked is you talked about the effect that 
this sort of, again, like the doom scrolling and the kind of addiction to outrage has on the family. Um, what we've talked about before on our podcast is that it also, it's not, it's also like on yourself eventually, um, you know, I would say like, you'll, you'll just be out doing something normal. Like you'll go to target and you'll see how other people are able to just, you know, live their lives and they don't know what, what this Cardinal just said that, you know, is is not in line with that. Like they're just able to live their lives and they don't have to worry about any of this and you'll just miss it. Like you'll just want to go back to before you were so outraged all the time and you won't, right. And you won't really be able to land back in the actual faith. Like you'll probably just, you know, like eventually you'll burn out of, of this process. Like you, it will, you'll have seen enough. And if you don't kind of try to take steps to tone it down and kind of walk it back to, you know, something within the faith, you're, you're likely to just say, screw it and go back to being, you know, a, a normie, a heathen, whatever you want to call it. Like there's a lot of danger, I think, to your own burnout happening. But I, I liked that you mentioned the family. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think it goes without saying that the, the danger in the most basic sense is just to yourself. But then you have to think about that mental process. I mean, at least for adults, right? You're you no matter how sort of um, poisoned your soul becomes by all the the doom scrolling, you know, maybe you'll just you're going to con- continue going to mass or whatever out of force of habit, and because that's sort of what your social circle and your life is organized around. Especially if you're a professional Catholic, you know, professional right. outrage, you know. Um, but what about your kids? You know, so I have little kids. If I, what would it be like? And I, you know, I catechize them at home and, um, what would it be like if my daughters heard me every day, just talking about the Holy father who is someone like they know his picture and they know who the Pope is. Basically, they know that the church was founded by Christ upon St. Peter and that, these things have been entrusted to his successors. They know that. But what if they heard me every day at dinner just talking to my wife about how this guy who's the successor of St. Peter is just awful, how I've just spent the last five hours arguing with uh, people who don't think he's awful and how they're all idiots. How? What kind of basis for for Catholic formation would this be? I just feel like it would be... <clears throat> It would make the kids just think, well, you know, all this was just was just BS. You know, my dad didn't really believe believe in any of it. He just liked arguing with people. He just liked he was just a crank. Yeah, I mean, there's not really any promotion of the faith. At some point, arguing just becomes the same as as I like to harp on my Catholic school upbringing, where I I wish I was a wish I learned more like if you think you know everything but you're just at the dinner table angry angrily talking about what the what is going on you're actually not teaching your kids anything right so you're kind of leaving them you're leaving like when they go when they go to college and someone says well why do you believe this this is stupid and they're like well I can't defend it it must be stupid right that's how that's how they get you and, you know, you just think about it. I, I keep coming back to um, the year of St. Joseph, which I think was such a great thing that um, 
the Pope announced, right? Yeah, I've, it's been great. I've been reading, doing the consecration and reading about St. Joseph. What a guy. Yeah. And can you imagine St. <laughs> Joseph at the dinner table with our Lord and our Blessed Mother, just like pounding his fist on the table and talking about how the chief priests are all cucked <laughs> yeah. Yeah. by Tiberius or whatever. Yeah. You know? And I just, mean, it's, yeah. I mean, of course you couldn't imagine that, but I'm saying it, that is a good comparison. Yeah. You know, where is the, here's the thing too. This is, and this is the other thing I would say is just even set aside all of the questions about whether these so-called concerns are expressed in good faith or whether they're well thought out, assuming that you, you do have them and that you have, you think some good reason for them. Is that something that you, uh, as a, as a father and a husband who've been entrusted with the spiritual, you know, care of, uh, your family, do you, do you magnify their burdens? Or in, in this case, I would say when you're talking about kids create new burdens where there don't need to be any, is this a cross that your six-year-old should have to bear? Or is this something that you should deal with, you know, um, on your knees, you know, receiving, uh, Holy communion and, you know, uh, uniting yourself with, uh, our lady, uh, with the rosary and through, you know, thinking hard and fasting, you know what I mean? If you, mm -hmm. if they really thought anything even approaching, you know, what they imagined the situation, if they really thought that that were true, wouldn't the response be just prayer and fasting and you know anything anything but you know tweeting for five hours every day well yeah why i mean why would we if we are in such a bad way like when your kid is screaming and wants a cookie you don't <coughs> just give them a cookie unless they calm down right like and change their like we as they say we get we get the leaders we deserve or we get the situations we're put in that we deserve as a as a faith so like i don't I don't see why screaming online would ever lead to any actual effective change. We've always said at your general judgment, you're not going to be asked like, so did you fight the info war against Pope Francis? Like, did you sufficiently own the Pope for his uh, unclear daily homily? Yeah. And you know, another thing that I think illustrates this problem really well is where it's just impossible for me to see it as anything other than bad faith was the dumb statue controversy. <laughs> the, like the stupid cardboard Pachamama? <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah. okay, so <laughs> this, 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 this dopey kid from Austria or whatever said, thinks that this is an idol, an actual demonic idol polluting, you know, a sacred space. Yeah. And so his response is to make a showboating video of himself throwing it in a river I, I know it's the like, same if you believe that there are you know you can read you know in the roman ritual or whatever how how you would actually destroy or find someone to destroy such an object right. yeah you know but throwing it into the tiber where someone can just scoop it up or whatever if you really believed it and you weren't just trying to make a video that would you know 
get you uh, a speaking of- tour in the United States and, and a wasn't whole bunch of the first, Wasn't he one of like the first people to get COVID-19? Didn't he get yeah. it like before everyone else did too? Yeah. I'm not saying that was a scam. I'm saying just in the, you know, life cycle of what is it? Tushuggy? Snug- yeah. What is his name? Shuggy Bear. <laughs> yeah. I always call him Tersnuggle. Ter- so that's got like that. So that uh, that's kind of the thing about, and you can look with like, you know, with all due respect to our dear departed presidential leader, Donald Trump, like what we would say on the podcast is a lot of the things these people don't actually believe because if they believed it, their plan of attack would be completely different, right? Like if you... that, that's why I defended Maxine uh, Walters because or Waters. Waters. Was, I was like, at least she's acting like you would act if you believed this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you would, if this thing was an idol, like you don't, you don't throw it in the river. You basically you burn it, I would assume. it to the depths of hell, right? Like it, so that and this leads me to the thing I want, was also going to talk about. Like I can't stand now Twitter arguments about masculinity. Like I can't do it. I can't. I I I do appreciate the idea of actual masculinity and what masculinity is, but I and I think there is an actual conversation to take place. But I cannot stand the Twitter and obviously Twitter arguments are stupid in general. But like the idea that guys are sitting on their phone like angrily typing out how to be a man while neglecting other responsibilities just like blows my mind and we're just kind of that's where we kind of are that's that's what i mean again about saint joseph as an example like yeah can you imagine saint joseph just sitting around and talking about you know what authentic manliness is or whatever while you know uh our lord is just running, running through the carpenter shop. Yeah. Like he's sitting there thinking like, Oh, are we going to, you know, make this table or whatever? Oh no. Sorry. Dad is busy. <laughs> he's still 45 minutes into this conversation about what authentic Israelite manhood looks like. Yeah. He's fighting the info war. Yeah. yeah. What? And I, again, but I, I mean, in some of these things, I do think that people have legitimate, concerns but oh yeah definitely in in yeah i don't want it to come across like we're saying that no one like there's nothing to worry about in general but like it again it's just a scope of the situation and then take note of how you're actually fighting it or what you're trying to do like i they're they're catholic websites um i try not to read most catholic websites but i i mean you can see some of these authors if you just take note of their tweets over the past few years like it it weighs on them heavily like it almost is like it's grinding them into the ground this fight and this like outrage and you just want like you said zach just go to target and be normal for a second like it i don't that's know. been one of our like key pieces of practical advice was basically find just the worst Novus Ordo mass in your diocese and just go sit in the back and just sit through mass and just do that and remind yourself that Jesus is there and, you know, take worst note of in the quote sack, of course. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, just like the most, all the things, the reasons that you go to the trap, like go to one of the, and just sit through it, remind yourself that Jesus is there and then duck out at the end and like, just kind of try to deprogram yourself a little bit and just 
walk it back and see that there's nice people at that mass and there's families and there's, you know, like try to get yourself off the ledge. Like I still would say everyone should go to the lab mass, but when it, when you get too far in, it's probably not from your parish anyway. It's probably from stuff you're reading online, but like just a practical step, you know, Jesus is going to be at that mass so you can handle it for an hour. Remind yourself that you're not dying, that a lot of your outrage is performative and just like sit through it and, you know, walk away maybe a little bit more normal. Well, that that's another good point, Zach, is that the people we're talking about are a subset even of Latin mascars. At, at my parish, I n- have never had a conversation, you know, at coffee hour or a potluck or, you know, some parish festival about 1 Peter 5. I've never heard the name Steve Skojek on anyone's lips now steve has been on a journey this year though i would i'll just say like well i guess he's you know they they did just run that romance without a pope article i guess but uh he's he's been on a a journey this year Uh, no that's true no and that actually steve Steve is the most introspective i think of all the of all the people on that side like i think he actually does think through no i wasn't i wasn't singling him out for criticism there my point is just that that this this whole discourse is just not something that even the average, you know, person who goes to a traditional mass is interested in. It's, and I think it's so hard for people to remind themselves that these people, these real people in your real life, in your real life, you know, they're not caught up in this stuff. When, when you have conversations with people after mass, it's just like normal stuff, just men talking about sports and the weather and family stuff and work and the kids, you know, do you think that the pandemic has exacerbated some of this? So I've been really worried about the fact that, again, I never saw this play out in parishes, but now, you know, they're encountering the faith mostly online. But then worse than that is they're going on to YouTube to watch their live stream mass and they're like having interactions in the comment section. Like I've been very concerned about how the pandemic is is pushing trads online where the bad behavior takes place. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably true. I don't know what you think, Walter. It's, what do you do when you get angry? To speak to that just because my Lord of Kalamazoo was the last bishop in the country to suspend public masses and the first to bring them back. So all told, that was, although not having mass on Easter was horrible. Yeah. That was a, just a, like a really brief window. Um, it's even, it's almost hard for me to remember it now. So just I'm just saying I don't I don't doubt that, but it's just hard for me to speak to because things have been basically normal here since Pentecost. What fair, do you fair. What do you do when you get angry, Walter? What do you do? You like when you get caught up, do you take a step back? How What's the Matthew Walter practical personal advice for fighting anger online? I mean, I can't, you know, pretend to, I don't want to, you know, pretend to be holier than thou. I mean, probably I just have a dumb tweet like anyone else, but then try to justify it. Oh, you know, I'm on the right side because I'm actually owning this guy, you know, to show my fidelity to Peter. Right. So, but, but in a way, I think that just, just that kind of self-awareness itself is is better than nothing um 
I think the real thing for me is just that no matter how um, immersed in this discourse we get, if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you're hanging out with uh, friends or you're just having, you know, family time, you know, if you're sitting there and you're watching the sword and the stone with your kids and you feel the need to reach your phone because somebody just responded to you and you want to pick it up and own him. And then 15 minutes later, you want to um, see how many faves you got. Um, you should yeah. probably just throw your phone away <laughs> because you've, you're, you're, you've, you've totally lost control. And I really think that knowing how to, to disengage, it's kind of like our, my pal, Chris Arnotti always talks about addiction and how, you know, it would be great if we could just get everybody off of heroin tomorrow. But since we can't, there are some reasonable steps that people, including people who are addicted to heroin themselves can take. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that just saying to yourself, okay, you know what? I'm done. With can't you done uh, with just it. become a college professor and, and use heroin constructively? Is, <laughs> yeah. is, that's the new treatment that I've, I've seen. Yeah. I, my my suggestion was that you just if i were to use the heroin analogy it would be okay i'm only going to use heroin while i'm at work and while my kids are in bed but that family time is not heroin time <laughs> true i mean true I, that you have to start somewhere spoken. you do have to start somewhere i think that's totally valid so and that yeah, people it's, no, it's no heroin ideal. at the dinner table <laughs> yeah like when your daughter says uh Papa, can we read the sailor dog? Don't say, just let me spike up first. <laughs> I mean, no, it's a good point. And we kind of, talk, we've talked about that. I think on a podcast we've done where we've ever talked about sin and stuff. It's like, sometimes you just got to be like, all right, I'll just do the sin tomorrow. Like you don't have to necessarily uh, like grapple mentally with never doing it again. Like just think, okay, I'm just going to wait an hour, you know, and then in an hour sin away, you know, just kind of like to, to get yourself there mentally. But yeah, that does make sense. Kind of taking a, a sort of phased approach at prying yourself away from like online outrage. Um, well, I know we've kept you kind of the full amount of time that you had available. Any, any further comments, any closing arguments, any additional things you want to add? No, thanks. Um, thanks so much for having me. I would just invite all of your listeners seriously to, uh, you know, really dig into the year of St. Joseph that the Pope has, um, you know, announced for us. I think that uh, probably emulating his example can do more good than, uh, than anything else. I love yeah, it. We'll have to do a, we'll have to tee up an episode on St. Joseph, man. We'll put, we'll tee put it that up. in the, in the, tee in the, it up and let it land. fly. He, he is Matthew Walther and he is at the lamp magazine.com where he's the editor and also writes pieces and you can find his stuff at the week, his older stuff, good stuff there. Check him out online where he is not being mad <laughs> at yeah. what is it? Matthew Walther. Yeah. yeah just at first name, last name is the handle. handle. What, what'd you say, Walther? 
Uh, the least mad account. <laughs> the least mad account online. All right. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you all next week. See ya.